0: Good morning. You may be seated for a couple minutes. Just want to draw your attention to a few announcements. Um, The first thing that I I noticed when we sang that song last night at, at Saturday night worship, he's our rescuer. We're in a campaign cycle, an election cycle, and there's lots and lots of people and lots and lots of voices that would like us to believe that they're going to rescue us. The reality is Christ is our rescuer, and it's nothing any more complicated than that. So this weekend... Today, in fact, is the last chance to sign up for the marriage retreat. We still have room available. As far as we know, the venue is still available. We haven't heard otherwise. And so if you still would like to go, you can sign up online for that today. And then since it's the 1st of November, we're starting to the normal activities that we have every month. Second Saturday of the month is uh, men's prayer breakfast or men's breakfast at the Main Street building, 8 o'clock. That'll be on the 14th. And then on the 15th, the third Sunday, we always have a new-to-sunrise gathering. We have a meal and, and give you an opportunity to meet with the leadership and the staff. And, and so if you'd like to, to come to that, just ask any of the staff or any of the elders about that. We'd love to, to get together with you and meet you and get to know you a little bit better. Those are always, always fun times because a lot of times when you're in a group of a couple hundred people, it's hard to have a chance to visit with people. And when we can kind of get into smaller groups, it just, it's just a, a great opportunity. Um, ministry opportunities are listed in your bulletin. We have three things right now, opportunities that we have as a church to minister to our community, uh, Kiwanis Thanksgiving boxes, those items are due by November 12th, Operation Christmas Child, they have those, the table set up there in the back, and Dave and Judy told me this morning that they have given out over half of the boxes already, and so if you want to get some of those boxes and bring them back in, uh, they said probably this will be the last time that they'll have extra boxes to give out. And then Christmas cards for the Scottsbluff Bluff Jail. Uh, Daryl told me this morning that he's been in contact with them, and they have told him that they can use 200 cards and 200 stamps instead of 100. So that's a, a neat opportunity to be able to minister to those that, that have limitations on how they can reach out to family and friends. And so um, we'll have a place starting next Sunday where you can bring those cards and stamps in, and, and we'll get them to Daryl, and he'll make those connections. Um, As far as the kids' ministries this morning, it's going to be a little bit challenging because we're in a new location and a different venue. Um, The older kids will dismiss you just before the the message this morning, and you can go out, and then after the service is over, parents, you can pick them up here at the top of the stairs. And as far as the rest of the kids, they're going to keep them in their classrooms until the parents come down and pick them up. And so all the classrooms are down here along the east side of the auditorium. There's a couple of classrooms here at the uh, the base of the stairs, and then there's some tables set up in the back. And so your kids will be there, and they'll be safe, and so you can just find them after the service is over. So I think that's all the announcements I have. I was told that Dewey needed to make an announcement. So I can't sit down either.
1: Red, Red's working. Um, yeah, and Curtis, come on up here, would you please, Jim? Um, many of you may know that last month was uh, Pastor Appreciation Month. So, as typical, uh, we're a month late, but uh, <laughs> but we actually Jim remembered. I, I, I'm not even going to take credit for it. <laughs> 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 Your wife remembered. All Jim, right. Confession. So uh, we just wanted to uh, express our gratitude to our pastors and. Paul, there's a little gift for you, and I don't know why, Brent, but yours is smaller than his. I've been there last time. <laughs> so there you go. So uh, we just wanted to tell him thanks, we do appreciate him, you know, and so many times I was thinking this morning, we want to say, uh, we appreciate you because you do this, thanks for working hard, and we do appreciate that, but uh, we appreciate them just for who they are, it's not what they do for us, and so... Uh, uh, Let's, uh, let's give him a hand of applause, first of all. And I have asked Brother Jim if he would uh, uh, ask God to, to bless him for the next year. So, Jim.
2: Heavenly Father, uh, what a joy it is to, uh, to be able to recognize our, our pastors. Um, just appreciate all that they do. Um, um, the the good and faithful shepherds they are leading the flock. And just, uh, Father, just ask that you uh, uh, give them the words of wisdom when they get those calls late at night, uh, someone in need, and just just give them the uh, the stamina and all that for all the things that, the nuances that go in um, to uh, shepherding this flock. So, Father... Uh, It's been a crazy year and just a a lot of different things and uh, uh, just ask that you uh, continue um, to guide us, guide them, and uh, uh, just uh, uh, bless them as they uh, continue to bring forth uh, the word and to minister to uh, the congregation here in the community and uh, bring in the word of Christ. I ask these in your precious name, amen. Thank you.
0: I want to start this morning by just expressing my appreciation for the acknowledgement this morning and 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 just to let you know what a privilege it is to be part of a church that is impassioned and motivated to serve the living Christ. I don't feel like that. Paul or I, either one, have to be out prodding people and coercing people to serve Christ. It just happens. And it's just an incredible blessing. So, this morning, we want to pick up where we left off in the book of Joshua. And through the songs this morning, um, it, it just... It just so impresses me how God can take things that are planned weeks and months ago, and He can orchestrate them so that at a given point in time, the message and the music and all those things fall into perfect order for what God's people need to hear. And the music this morning was very much that way. Last week we talked about opening, the opening verses, opening chapters of Joshua. The nation of Israel is in the middle of, at the beginning of a conquest in which they're going to fulfill, God's going to fulfill his promise to them. As I promised you, I would give you, I'm going to give you. And so last week we talked about how a promise is a process. And there's a a statement in time, and then over time that promise is fulfilled. And that's exactly what we saw beginning last week about how God worked. God knew, first of all, that Joshua was going to need a spiritual shot in the arm. Um, He was going to follow Moses, who was the greatest spiritual leader of all time, short of Jesus Christ. And so his promise to Joshua was, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Joshua encouraged the people of Israel and told them to be strong and courageous and and to stay the course and and to obey and to follow and, and, and do those things which God has set out for us to do. And if you do that, you will be prosperous and successful. So we pick up the story today. The nation of Israel has crossed the Red Sea. They're camped at Gilgal. They've had a divine appointment with a prostitute in, in, this, in the city of Jericho, and we're going to look a little bit about the significance of that this morning and how her house on the wall was important. She had a message for them. It was evident that God was working in the hearts of some of the people within the, the nation of Jericho, even though, by and large, they were very much a godless and pagan society. We find in Joshua chapter 5, that first verse, that, that already before the first battle occurred, that the nations and the residents of Canaan were already cowering in fear because of what they had heard about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, what they had seen with the Israelites and their miraculous crossing of the Jordan River, the hearts of the people were already defeated. And so there's a little interlude between where we left off last week and chapter 6 and 7 this week. Um, God asked Joshua to go back and, and to have all the men of Israel circumcised because they hadn't been practicing that while they were wandering in the, in the wilderness. And, and that was a physical sign that was part of the, of the, for the men of the camp, that was a sign of, of them being God's chosen people. And if they were going to rest under and be under the blessing of God and be used by God, they had to fulfill that covenant with God. And so they did that. It took a few days. We're told at the end of chapter 1 that they celebrated the Passover for the very first time in the land of Canaan. We're told that the manna stopped as soon as they had crossed over and now they could eat of the produce of the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey is what, is what it was promised to, to Abraham. The manna stopped. And so God's provision for them had changed and so they ate some of the fruit of the land. As we start into this section this morning, we're going to talk about two battles, the battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai. And as we get into the heart of the book of Joshua, I just want to talk at the beginning about the images of battle and bloodshed and carnage and cruelty that we see in this book. Because it's very real. And, and we see men, women, children, animals that are all fall and killed by the sword of the, of the hands of the, of the armies of Israel. And, and frankly, that's troublesome to us. Because, you know, we live in a day and age where we have the Geneva Convention and, and there's rules about how you fight and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And, and so these man-made rules govern what's right or wrong about battle. But within the book of Joshua, it's a little different dynamic, because in reality, God is using the armies of Israel to be His hands of judgment upon the people of Canaan. And so what they're doing is not because of their own desire, it's because God said, I'm judging these people, and this is what I want you to do. And, and that's difficult. I mean, that's just hard for us. It, it, gets, it, it, it goes against my sense of fairness and decency and mercy and all those things. You know, in reality, I think back in the book of Genesis where, where God looks at the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and just the debauchery and the sinfulness and the evil that was rampant in that place, and He rains down fire and brimstone from heaven and destroys those cities. You know, that doesn't bother me. God knew they deserved it. It was God's righteous judgment. But when that judgment comes at the hands of men of a human army, that's hard to understand. And yet the reality is we have to recognize that as Israel came into the land of Canaan and was God's instrument of judgment, it was not without God's plan and God's preparation and God's timing. I want to read for you some verses from Genesis chapter 15 to give you a sense about God's patience and long-suffering with the people of the land of Canaan. This is God's words to Abraham, part of the covenant that he gave him. Genesis chapter 15, beginning with verse 13. Then the Lord said to him, Abram, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation, they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to the land of Canaan, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached full measure. And so when God made that statement to Abraham, he said, I'm not ready to judge those people yet. I want to give them some more time in order to recognize as, as they see my blessing upon the nation of Israel and they see my provision for crossing the Red Sea and the miraculous deliverance from Egypt and, and all those things that, that were evidences that God is God and God is powerful and He is worthy to be worshipped. And so in reality, as Israel comes into the, Can- to the land of Canaan and to begins to destroy these towns and nations and people... It was only after those people had had 400 years while the nation of Israel was in Egypt, an additional 40 years while Israel was wandering in the desert, and then this short period of time after they had camped and crossed over the Jordan and now they were in the land of Canaan, they had had all that time to repent and to acknowledge the sovereign God of Israel, Jehovah. And now the line was drawn. God says, it's time for you to be judged. We're told in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that, that God is not slow about keeping His promises, and He desires no one to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so as we see the bloodshed and the judgment, it's the judgment of God, just because it's at the hands of men, doesn't mean it's men shedding blood. It's God judging these people. After they've had centuries to come around and acknowledge the God of Israel. And we know God was at work. Because last week we learned of a prostitute Rahab that lived in the city of Jericho. That God had spoken to. And she had faith in God to the extent that she would lie and put her life on the line. To hide the spies that we're going to come in and take the nation, take the city. And so as we go through and we look at these troublesome passages, just, just remember, this this isn't just a random, this is God, part of God's time. And and the same thing is true. There's going to come a time in which the opportunities for us and people in our age, the line's going to be drawn and the curtain's going to be drawn and God's judgment's going to fall the same way that it has and what we see for the people of Canaan. So I want to look this morning at a couple of things. I want to look just briefly at the two battles, the battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai, make a couple analysis of uh, just kind of look at at some of the details that God has for us in that, and then at the end I'm going to kind of backtrack, and I I want to look at what I believe is, is really God's word for us today. Uh, something that, that, that the sovereign God orchestrated weeks and months ago, and yet it's appropriate for today. So as we look at the book of Joshua in chapter 6, the first thing we see is God's battle plan for the city of Jericho. We know that Jericho was a significant fortified city. I have a couple of pictures here I'm going to show you in a minute about artist renderings of about what their fortifications look like, because it it, it shows why... The text and the words that we read in this, in this account are exactly accurate. It says in chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, "...now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites, and no one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, "'See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and his fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days.'" Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horn in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. Now, before we talk about the process, I want to talk about that last phrase that's there in in verse 5. Then the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, and everyone will go straight in. There's a couple pictures here I want you to see that I found um, on the Internet of what the wall might have looked like. So this is an artist's rendering. The first thing you have to understand about the, the city of Jericho is it was about eight or 900 feet below sea level. So it was in a hole. It was in a, And so in order for them to just protect themselves from floods and what have you, they had a, a tell or a berm or a mound around the city just to keep the floodwaters out. And so as part of their armament, they had this mound of dirt. They would have had a, um, a retaining wall here at the bottom. And then on top of that retaining wall, they would have had an additional wall. And then this area in between... And then a second wall appeared. So, what most likely happened? Well, when the text says tells us that the army went up and went straight in, what would happen when this wall fell down? That wall would crumble and fall down at the base of this wall and serve as a ramp that they could go right straight up into the city. What would happen when this wall fell down behind that back ramp? It would serve as a ramp for them to go down into the city on the other side. And so the way that the, that the text reads and what the archaeologists have found digging around the, the city of Jericho it, since the early 1900s, it all fits. It all fits. And so that's exactly, that's exactly what happened. Another second picture, if you go to that second one. This is a little harder to see, but this is a, a, an artist's rendering that kind of fills in some of the gaps. Now, last week, we talked about Rahab and how her house, interestingly enough, was part of the city wall. Well, most likely, there was houses between the upper wall and the lower wall, and those would have been the low-rent district, because that would not have been near as safe to live there as it would have been to live inside the second wall. And so, someone who's made her living by prostitution most likely would live in the low-rent district out on the edge of the city, and most likely her house butted up against that bottom wall so that when she let the spies out, they could have been let down the wall out into the wilderness where they hid for a couple of days before they went back across the Jordan River. And so here you kind of see a picture of what could have happened. This wall fell down, it became a ramp for them to go up, go up, and into the city. Just exactly like the narrative tells us. And it's also fascinating to me as you look at the, at the just read the history of the, of the city of Jericho, the archaeologists have actually found a place along the northern wall of Jericho in which the wall did not collapse. Now, where do you suppose that was? Rahab's house. Rahab's house. exactly like the Scripture tells us. And so God was faithful. Go back to the battle plan. I I couldn't help but think, as I I studied this past couple weeks, this passage about, you know, the armies of Israel, after God had performed the miracle and had done all the things, there was 40,000 armored men. That was the army of Israel at that time, we're told in the text. And you can imagine how amped up they were at this point in time. God had performed this miracle. They crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. I mean, everything was in place. God had given His promises to Joshua. I mean, they were ready to go. But God knew that it was critically important at this very first battle to set the tone for what this conquest was going to look like. And And the mission or the message that God wanted to give the children of Israel is that My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher and better than your thoughts. And so the way that we're going to wage war, beginning with Jericho, is not in the way that you would normally think we're going to wage war. We're going to do it my way. And because we do it my way, you're going to see an incredible display of the power and the provision of God in ways that you can't even imagine. And so that's what the nation of Israel did. The armies walked around the city one time. I, I In in my mind's eye, I think about, I don't know if, how many of you have ever heard the, the sound of a ram's horn, the chauffeur, they call it a chauffeur. But it's just this this mournful, airy pitch that just, just kind of, Sends chills up the back of your spine. And so here, think of yourself if you were one of the residents of Jericho. And here's this mighty army, 40,000 men, and the ark, and those ahead and behind the ark. And they're out marching around their city without a sound. Not a shot being fired. Not a word being spoken. Nothing but this mournful, hollow sound of the ram's horn. Can you imagine how that played with the minds of the people within the city of Jericho? I mean, there was was almost like a mental battlefield that was going on. And then we're told after after six days of that, then God told them to march around the city seven times on the last day. And when the appropriate time came, they were to let out a mighty shout and the walls would come down. It tells us in Joshua chapter 6, verse 20, exactly how that played out. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, just like the picture showed us, and they took the city. They devoted to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. And so Israel learned right away with this very first battle. That if they walked in obedience, and they walked in the way that God told them to, just like He told Joshua in the first chapter, that they would be prosperous and have success. And so what do we find as a principle as far as this first battle in the conquest of Canaan? We find that when I as an individual or me as a head of my family, or me as part of the community, or me as a leader in my church, when I walk in obedience before God, that it blesses people all around me. Because the army walked in obedience, and the priests were obedient, and they did what God said. There was an incredible victory and and an incredible blessing, and God gave them a city that, that they could have spent months trying to access and conquer. And God just presented it to him. Obedience blesses all. Obedience encourages and builds up those around us. When we walk in obedience and we do what God says because he said that's what to do, even if it's silly, even if it seems to make no sense, it encourages people and it builds people up. Way beyond our sphere of influence. You know, right now we have, you know, the internet and Facebook and all those media sources that we have, and and we have access to stories of faith and testimonies of faith of people that live thousands of miles away. Obedience encourages and builds up people around us, and God honors that. So the first battle was somewhat easy in terms of man's efforts because God said, I want you to see. What will happen if you do things my way, if you walk in the way that I tell you to? So you can imagine again how excited the army would have been at this point in time, how enthusiastic they would have been about, wow, this is awesome. This is going to be easy. God's just going to take care of us. There's a change in tone between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Joshua between the battle of Jericho and the battle of Ai. And, of course, we'll find out later that there was sin in the camp, and that affected the battle that was to come. But to me, it's significant that after this great and grand victory that God gave them, it's almost like (sighs) they took a deep breath. And, And as Christians and followers of Christ... It's really, really important that we recognize that the times in our life in which we are most vulnerable to the ploys of the evil one is immediately after God does something amazing. Have you ever thought about that? You, you have this thing in front of you and you've prayed about it and you've worked towards it and, and, and God just brings it to fulfillment. And shows his power and his provision in a mighty way. And then in the waning days after that, you know, you have fights with your spouse. Things just don't go very well. And co-workers are kind of irritable. And it's like we come down the other side. And I think in some ways that's kind of what happened to Israel. They, they had gone through this incredible victory at Jericho. And they just took a deep spiritual breath. Wow. You know, there's a, another picture in Scripture that I, I like to go to because it's an exact example of this very thing played out in, in the life of the prophet Elijah. You remember in, in 1 Kings chapter 19 that Israel was, had, a, had a godless king, Ahab, and a godless wife, Jezebel, and they were leading Israel in all kinds of horrible ways of idolatry. And God raised up this prophet Elijah, incredible man of God, And in the 18th and 19th chapter of 1 Kings, we see that that God set Elijah up to to be this person that was going to make a stand for God. And so he called all the false prophets up on Mount Carmel, and they set up two altars, and, and they called down fire from their gods. And, of course, the false gods' fire didn't come down. And when Elijah prayed, the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifices and consumed the water they'd poured all over the sacrifices. And they killed all the false prophets. And the land had been riddled with drought for many, many years. And gods began to send rain. All of those things at the hands of Elijah. I mean, he was God's man out in front of this powerful display of what God was doing. And then on the heels of that, after the rain started to come, we're told in the text that, that, that Elijah picked up the edges of his robe and tucked them in his belt, and he ran ahead of the king's chariot all the way back to Jezreel. And a Supernatural empowerment of God. And you think, wow, he's got to be riding sky high. The verses that follow tell us what happened to Elijah. The vulnerability of the time immediately after God uses us. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. This is 1 Kings 19 beginning with verse 1. And he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them, like one of the false prophets. Elijah was afraid. And he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there. And while he and while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. So here's this man. The 24, 48 hours before that had been in the center of a powerful display of God's might and power. And afterwards, he took a deep breath, a spiritual breath, and we see him being depressed to the point of death. Vulnerability after a point of spiritual, after a spiritual high. And, and, and you see that. And, and I know any of you that have walked very long with, with God and walked with Christ. It's there and it's real. And as I look at the next battle that Israel is going to face, the battle of Ai, I, I can't help but wonder if that's not part of what was going on. That they, that they took a breath. Whoa. And that gave opportunity for the evil one. Back to Joshua chapter 7. I want you to notice the difference in the way they went about this second battle versus the first one. So said, Joshua sent some men, this is verse 2, from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and, and don't, don't worry the whole army, for there's only a few people live there. See the change in attitude? We got this. Not a big deal. Little town, not many people there, nothing like what we've just been through. So we'll just go up. And what was the result? So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. And at this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So, what happened? Well, we know from the text that there was sin in the camp, that there was a man named Ai that was part of the army of Israel, or a man named Achan, part of the army of Israel. That when he had went in and, and, and taken, been part of the conquest of the city of Jericho, that he came upon a house. And within that house, he found some pieces of silver. And he found a bar of gold. And he found a, a, an ornate Babylonian robe. And we're told in the text that he coveted that. He coveted that. He thought, man, nobody will know. Nobody will know if I take that. You know, I, I, I look at that. I look at what he took. And it just reminds me of how foolish, the foolish decisions that sin caused us to make. Now think about Achan's life. Everybody in the camp of Israel had just spent 40 years in the wilderness. They didn't have anything. I mean, most likely the clothes they were wearing is the clothes that that they had went in to the 40 years in the wilderness in. had nothing, no possessions. So you don't think it's not going to show up? When you appear with a handful of silver and a bar of gold and this ornate <laughs> Babylonian robe? Absolutely. You know, I laughed this week. It seems like all of us at some point in time, our parents have to work us through the this thing about um, not shoplifting and not taking things that aren't ours out of a store, and I too had to go through that same exact thing, and I don't remember whether I was four or five old enough to know that... You didn't take things out of a store without paying for them. But I remember that I was in a store and by myself, and I just kind of put something in my pocket and went home. And and when I got home, of course, mom found out, and there was a price to be paid um, on the seat of my pants. And then we had to go back, and we had to talk to the manager, and I had to apologize and make that right. You know what it was that I sold? Four or five-year-old boy? A sewing kit. A sewing kit. Now, now, how foolish is that? But it was just the idea of taking something. And and so I look at AI or I look at Aiken and I see what he did, and, and it just fits the pattern of what sin does to us. We just don't think wisely. We just don't, you know, we just get caught up in something. And so that's what happened. And and because Of his disobedience, one man in an army of 40,000, there was consequences. In the same way that obedience affects all in a positive way, disobedience affects all too. Thirty-six men died because of Achan's sin. Thirty-six families whose husbands and sons did not come back from the battle of Ai. Because of the disobedience of one man. And and most of the time when we reason about our sinful behavior and all that, we can, you know, nobody will know. God knows. And it affects people way beyond the extent that we think that it will. And so disobedience affects all. Disobedience discourages all. We're told in the text that the nation of Israel's hearts became like water and they melted in fear. Just took the wind out of their sails because they were flying high and now all of a sudden they'd been routed in battle. And so on the heels of that, what do we find? In the same way that God sent judgment and the judgment was far-reaching upon the the people of Canaan, Achan's sin had far-reaching consequences for those around him. He was put to death. His family was put to death. They were burned. And there was a pile of rocks heaped over the top of the remains. God wanted the children of Israel to recognize that disobedience was significant, even if the specifics are small. Two battles. One in which they followed God. One in which they didn't, prosperity, success, consequences, death, and cost. No different for us today. As we close this morning, I want to back up in the text a little bit. And as we do, this, God put this on my heart early in the week to the extent that I I couldn't hardly get into studying about Jericho and Ai because it so gripped me for where we are on the eve of an election, significance of what's going to happen from this day on. And God gives Joshua a little spiritual interlude between the time of when the army was was circumcised and they celebrated Passover and, and all those things, preparing for battle, God knew that, that Joshua needed to hear something, needed to hear from God, needed to have an encounter with God before he started off onto this conquest of the promised land. And so we read in Joshua chapter 5, these verses before the battle of Jericho. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence And ask him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let me paint the picture for you. Joshua was doing what any good general would have done. He was out looking over the the city of Jericho for himself. Wanted to see what it was like where he was about to take his men into battle. Out walking around the city. And he comes upon this man and and I believe that Joshua knew instantly that this wasn't a man. And in reality, it was a pre-incarnate the epiphany of Jesus Christ that he came in contact with, with a sword drawn. And so Joshua, as he's preparing to go into battle and he's got, here looms the city of Jericho, he asked the question that any of us would ask Are you for us or are you for our enemy? And his answer is significant, because his answer was, neither, neither, neither. We're about to embark in a battle and do something that you promised that you were going to give to us. I've got an army waiting behind me that that I'm trying to lead, and I've got... Thousands of people that are under my care for protection. I've got an entire land of Canaan who is all ready and wanting to defeat us and protect their land. And you won't pick a side? Neither. Neither. And Joshua's response tells me the significance of this person that he came in contact with. When the commander of the Lord's army did not choose a side, Joshua immediately fell in reverence. All of a sudden, all of the battles ahead and all of the people that he was protecting and all of this that was going on in his life was insignificant because he'd been confronted with the image of of the sovereign God of the universe. And as I thought about this this week, it just gripped me. We have spent the last months talking about masks and COVID and freedoms and racial tensions and elections and and we 've been caught up in the chaos of all that, and we 've sought to pull God into my side and so that he 'll agree with me and and i 've sought to pull God into my side, and so he 'll agree with me and in reality, which side is God interested in neither this isn 't his kingdom on this earth it's a kingdom of man and the reality for us is if we have a glimpse of the sovereign God of the universe then what the landscape looks like on Wednesday morning will not matter it will not matter but we get so gripped up in this world and all these things about us and it becomes a a distraction for what God really wants to be doing in our lives. You know, the reality is when I get up Wednesday morning, it should be no different than Tuesday morning. I awake. I thank God for a new day of life and breath. I thank Him for His presence and His provision in my life and the saving grace of Jesus Christ That I don't deserve. And I rest in the fact that everything that happens in this day is in perfect, planned alignment with His purpose for the ages. It doesn't change a thing. And in reality, I think that's a message that God wants us to hear this morning. That's what matters. That we've had a holy ground experience with the holy sovereign God of the universe, and that puts all the rest of this in perspective. And it falls by the wayside. I am God. I will be exalted in the heavens, I will be exalted on the earth. The nations are a drop in the bucket. The princes of this world come to naught. I blow on them and they go away like chaff. You know, I thought on the way home last night from from our Saturday night worship, how long has it been since I have prayed the opening lines of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus told us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed, exalted, Holy be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about me. It's not about my comfort. It's not about about what he's doing. And so it's my prayer for myself and for each of us today that God would grip us with the reality of of who He is, His sovereignty, His holiness, His complete and total control over the events of our world. And that when this week unfolds, it will make no difference when we see what the reality is going to be like for the months and years ahead.